so, so good to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 2. And if you do not have a Bible, hopefully there should be one underneath the seat in front of you, uh, hopefully beside you. Um, if you do not own a Bible, please see that as our gift to you this morning. As you're opening it up to Hebrews 2, please feel free to take this home with you, the Word of God, and, and saturate your life in it. Read it, please. We're continuing our study through this letter, the letter to the Hebrews. And that last little portion that, that Troy led us in, turning our eyes to Jesus, looking upon him, is so, uh, so helpful when we look at our passage this morning. So we're looking at verses 5 through 9. And with your Bibles open, I want to I read this for us. Starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the, the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hear the word of the Lord. As you just heard that passage read, what I want um, to be on your mind as we're working through this is the reality that at present, we do not yet see the full scope of what God has accomplished through his Son. And so when we just read, turning our eyes upon Jesus, looking at him, many would respond, okay, I'm looking, I don't see him. And I want to emphasize the eyes of faith. And that may be something that is unfamiliar to you, but there is a way in which God has blessed his people to have spiritual eyes to see the glory of the Son, where Christ is right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. At present, we do not yet see physically all that God has accomplished through Christ. But the author of this letter is writing to the original recipients and by the Holy Spirit applying it to us receiving it today that even while at present we do not yet see, be encouraged, brothers and sisters. 
Because God truly has done an amazing work through the Son. In order to see it, to grab hold of it, to believe, well, that is a gift from God. And I pray that that would be a reality for you even this day. The gift of faith to be able to behold the glory of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look through the Bible and see all the the suffering and persecution that God's people have endured and even currently are enduring, the Bible never asks us to pretend that things are better than they really are. It never asks us to ignore pain or to put on a fake smile as if everything is hunky-dory when the reality is there are times, maybe even now, that you're confused, you're deeply hurt or frustrated or even discouraged. What we see from Scripture is a, a biblical realism expressed even in this expression that we heard in our passage today. At present, you do not currently see, but please understand that God is at work. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And I just want to help us here. It is not a lack of faith to be realistic about our circumstances and suffering. We can be grateful and glad for all that God is doing in our midst. And at the same time, we can be honest about the hardships and losses we are facing. So if you have been part of Grace Covenant Church through this year of 2022, this year has proved to me more than any other in my life that we have not yet conquered death. Death is cruel, and it continues to exert its authority over us. Babies die, teenagers die, spouses die. This last week, a young mother of four that we knew died. Fathers and mothers die, and good friends die. And at present, we want things to change. We want to cry out and say, how long, O Lord? And we hear again, verse 8 of our passage today, at present, we do not yet see. Now, in order to understand what this fully means in the context in which it's given and how it should shape our lives, we need to back up and start at the beginning of our paragraph and try to understand why our author has drawn this conclusion. This truly is a remarkable, remarkable passage. In verse 5, we hear these words. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, in chapter 1, the author, the writer of this letter, has has strived to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, the superiority of the Lord Jesus. He is superior over all things, and he spends a considerable amount of time even emphasizing his superiority over, over angels. We made note that during this time, there was 
beliefs and confusions, uh, confusion to, to the extent in which this created being, angels, the heavenly host, how humans are to view them, interact with them. Some were elevating angels to a place that they should not have been elevated to, even worshiping angels. And the author of Hebrews is helping place Christ where he belongs. He is superior over all things. And so while helping the readers understand this reality, do not lose sight, do not forget about who this Christ is in your life, the place that he should hold above all. We see that in the first chapter. We're also told here in this particular verse that God did not ordain or plan that angels should rule the world to come. The things of this world are not subjected to angels, but to someone or something else. And so he then actually goes to Psalm 8, where Ronnie began our service reading the call to worship, Psalm 8. There's a question that you should ask. To whom then was this incredible promise made that the whole world would be subjected to them or to him? That's a good question to ask. What, what, is, what is the author talking about? Who was this incredible promise made to? The answer according to Psalm 8, please hear this, is to us, to mankind, the promise of subjection was made. Now, for some of us, we don't even have this kind of category in our minds that God created man to rule and have dominion over the earth. So we're going to have to do some, some work here, some groundwork, in order for us to truly appreciate where he begins in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. You may be sitting here feeling incredibly small and in, insignificant in the scope of, of creation in the world around you. Maybe you're one that likes to go outside at night and gaze upon the stars and just be blown away by how big the galaxies are and how small you are. But we need to actually ground our understanding of creation in what Scripture tells us and God's design for humanity. Man and woman is the crown jewel of creation. This is what we see in, in Psalm 8. Some of us need to stop and really hear this glorious truth. You may have such a, a low view of yourself. And you need to understand, you are the crown jewel of all of creation. You matter. The God who created the heavens and the earth specially knitted you together in your mother's womb. You are valuable, created in the image of God. When we have this kind of beginning framework rooted in God's word, 
things start to then make sense when you take a large step back and view God's grand plan of redemption. Why is God spending so much time dealing with us? That's a good question. And Scripture answers that for us. And so we want to, it may be helpful, you've got your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to also open up to Psalm 8. Because this is where the author of Hebrews is specifically quoting verses 4 through 6 in Psalm 8. This is where he is, he's building his case for what we're looking at this morning. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Going back to the beginning helps us understand Psalm 8. Going back to see Adam's vocation. Adam stood as a representative of mankind. As he went, so went the rest of us. God created man and woman in his image. We were created to be image bearers of the creator, formed into the image of God, unique from all other parts of creation. Adam was the first created son of God. We're told in Luke 3.38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Adam, created in the image of God, was created sinless. He was, in the beginning, the sinless Son of God. Called in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we hear in Psalm 8 is rooted in the reality of Genesis 1. Adam was given a suitable helper to fulfill this mandate from God. We're told he, it was not good for, for man to be alone, and so he needed Eve, a suitable helpmate. Adam and Eve were to produce children, to be fruitful and multiply, 
Please listen to how this begins to unfold. They were to fill the earth, and the implication is that they would have then communicated this commission that they were given on to their children. And so in this sense, Adam was to function as a prophet, to proclaim this is what we are to be about. We are image bearers going forth to produce more image bearers so that God's glory would fill the earth. Adam had responsibility. He was commanded to cultivate and keep the garden in obedience. Adam was commanded by God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he was threatened with death if he did. Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so as they produce children and those children are to go out, Adam was told to subdue the earth. His calling was not just limited to the Garden of Eden. He was supposed to subdue the earth and fill it with all these other image bearers who were to be sinless and who would be the the heralds of, of who God truly is. We're told Adam was to to rule. And so in this sense, over all uh, creatures, Adam was an appointed king over creation. In a sense, God's viceroy, maybe a weird term, but it's the one who rules in the name of the king. So Adam was called to rule in the name of the king of kings. Rule over other creatures. Adam was made body and soul, we're told, outside the garden, and then put in the garden. And it was in the garden where he experienced the the special presence of God. We're told in Genesis that God walked amongst them, that communion and fellowship. And so think of the garden as the the first beginnings of, of a temple in which God's presence specially existed and was was experienced. All of this is glorious, and this is the way that it started. Eden was the prototype of something much greater. Adam's calling was to extend that garden temple throughout the entire earth. And so, this was the plan. The whole earth would be a special dwelling place of God among men. And so, Psalm 8 is celebrating the fact that we learn from Genesis chapter 1 that God has made an amazing earth, amazing universe, beauty and power, but nevertheless, man is the crown of his creation. But if you look around, and if you've read your Bibles, you know that that is not the end of the story. The first man, the first Adam, sinned, and was removed from the garden. And just as sin came into the world through one man, we're told in Romans 5, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so what was offered in the garden was spoiled by sin. So because of sin, we do not now reign over the world as God originally intended. So at present, 
we do not see the way that it's supposed to be. So there is a double meaning. So if you're looking back at Hebrews 2, there's a, there's a double meaning or a double reference of Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 that's quoted in our passage this morning. On the one hand, it originally applies to man in general. This is the way God created the world. But as we see in this passage, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, points out that it's only fulfilled in Christ. Now, hear it. In putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. There's a shift that's happening here in regards to him. So in every respect, this is true of Genesis 1.28. God put everything in subjection to man, to rule and have dominion over, to cultivate and yet, what we see because of the fall is that that was completely messed up. Everything was radically changed because of sin and death entering into the world. And yet this hymn is then now moved and positioned and highlighted on Christ being the hymn. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9 is hugely important. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That makes the application of this passage all the more appropriate to the Lord Jesus Christ because he came to do what we did not do. He came to undo what we had done. And so all these things that were originally intended for us but lost because of the fall, Christ restores he is the him that actually makes all things that are wrong right. He fulfills them perfectly. How is it that God is going to reverse the effects of the fall? How is it that God is going to restore our glory and honor? He's going to do it through Jesus' humiliation, his incarnation. The way God establishes Jesus' rule is the most surprising thing in all the world. Look at verse 9 and the various steps that are spoken of. So first of all, it's making, it's making reference here, for a little while he's going to be made lower than the angels. Now this is such an amazing part of Scripture. In Psalm 8, Verses 4 through 6, in describing mankind, we understand that we were created in the image of God, but created lower, so to speak, than angels. But here, the author, inspired by the Spirit, is helping us see that it's more focused when talking about the Lord Jesus in a temporal manner. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Now, how do we interpret that? 
Well, for one thing, it helps us understand his, his pre-existence. So this is all about Christology, understanding who Jesus is. If you understand that he is the eternal son of God, then you understand that he has always existed. He is part of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God existing in three persons, yet one. The eternal Son has always existed. He was the one, according to chapter 1, who actually God the Father through him created all things. Yet for a little while he became lower than the angels. Meaning, you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse verse 5 through 11, and you see this great description of the humility of the eternal Son of God leaving his, his throne of praise from the heavenly, heavenly hosts in order to become born a babe. This humiliation was him being on mission to accomplish redemption for us. So when we think about all that goes into even what he was saying in this for a little while, we see the incarnation of Christ, him being born into the world, being put on display, even by the use of the name Jesus. This is the first time in the letter that Christ, the eternal son, is referred to as Jesus. So now when we think about the incarnation, the humanity of Christ, over the centuries, many people have rejected the Christian faith because of this doctrine. It is a stumbling block for many. Muslims, for example, have had trouble with the incarnation because they believe it entails the transformation of God into a mere man. That is not, that is not correct. What we believe about Christ really does matter. This is a misunderstanding of the incarnation. For the doctrine of the incarnation holds that God the Son added to himself a human nature without in any way changing or lessening his deity. Fully God, fully man. He is truly God and truly man at the same time. One of the church fathers, Augustine, comments on this passage, and this is what he says. In order to be a mediator, the son, willed to take the form of a servant below the angels, being simultaneously the way of life on earth and life itself in heaven, all at the same time. This should blow your mind. It's okay that you're going, I'm having a hard time even grasping at these realities. Simultaneously, the way of life on earth and life itself in heaven. That is Jesus Christ. So Francis Schaeffer once, and I guess actually a couple times, was, was fond of saying this. If Jesus is the answer, then what was the question? I think that's good for us to think about. If you want to share your faith, if you really hold to this great salvation that we saw in verses 1 through 4, you're going to have people ask, well, why do, I, why do I need Christ in my life? If Jesus is the answer, then what was the, the question? Why, 
Why should I even be looking outside of myself for someone like Jesus? And what we see in this passage, this reference to Psalm 8, this is a question. How can the hope of Psalm 8 be restored? I, I hope that you heard the words described in Psalm 8, which is helping us understand Genesis 1, that God created us, human beings in his image, to rule and have dominion over the earth, to be his image bearers, declaring his glory throughout the earth. Okay, if Jesus is the answer, you've got to understand the question. Have you wondered why you were created? Why do we exist? All of those are really good questions. If you find yourself just so small and insignificant and, and are finding really a purpose in life, you've got to answer these questions. And I pray that it's rooted in God's word, his revelation that fills in the blank because it radically changes everything. And if you understand why you were created for his glory and to enjoy him forever, and you realize that outside of Christ, in your sin, you're not experiencing that, you're not actually doing what you were created to do, then I hope that you would say, okay, there, there is an answer provided to this question. Let's, let's figure that out. I want to know. How can the hope of Psalm 8 be restored? And in our passage, Christ's death is explained, is, is given as the answer for what was needed. The cause is given. It is by the grace of God. The nature of Christ's death is given that he might taste death and its purpose, Christ's death was for others, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now we see in this passage, again, there's a shift of what was spoken of in Psalm 8 and how it's applied to Jesus. We see very clearly in verse 9 that he was crowned with glory and honor because not just because he existed, but because of his amazing work. So Christ's person and work really matter. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection really matter for those who long to experience what was described in Psalm 8. It is actually the key that unlocks the ability for us to be what we were created to be. Without this description in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, there would be no hope for us. You could be sitting in a group of people and just murmuring about the reality that we find ourselves in with a, a void, lack of hope. You're just experiencing what is present, and that's it. Now, you might be able to see the bright side of things and, and turn lemons into lemonade for your current situation, but there is actually no reality of a hope to come, hope of glory. You're just kind of stuck in 
What you see is what you get. And this passage, the author, inspired by the Spirit of God, is saying, brothers and sisters, at present, you don't see it yet with your physical eyes, but that does not change the reality of what Christ has accomplished through his work on the cross. So we see that he was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering on the cross. His death was an expression of the saving grace of God for all those on whose behalf he suffered. And a good question to ask, who are they? Who are those who experience this great hope? Who experience the grace of God? And as chapter 2 unfolds, he will tell us in verse 10 that it is those many sons whom he is bringing to glory. It is those brothers and sisters and those children of God that by suffering the death that he suffered in their place, he becomes the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who defeats death and restores the hope of Psalm 8 for all who are in him. So God made man to rule. But man sinned and lost what God had originally intended for him. And so, man's rule can only be restored in the Lord Jesus. In those who trust in him, this is possible. This is a reality. Jesus, who perfectly reflects the image of God in the new creation which he inaugurates with his life, death, burial, and resurrection. you got to understand this. Those who believe upon him, believe upon this second Adam who did everything that the first Adam did wrong, he did right. Those who are in him are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so Jesus Christ enables sinners who lost everything to regain the glory and rule that was first bestowed upon Adam. I hope that you're seeing a bigger picture. We would refer to this as biblical theology, understanding what God did in the beginning and what he is going to do at the end, the grand plan of redemptive history, and to recognize that this is amazing news. The creator of the heavens and the earth did not leave humankind in their sin and depravity. But in Genesis 3.15, we see that, that first glimpse of the gospel, that the seed of the woman would come and become the, the, the one who crushes the head of the snake, the deceiver, the one who stole and robbed us of what we were intended to be. When sin and death entered the, rule, entered the world, there was hope given in germinal form in Genesis 3.15. And then we see the outworking of this progressive revelation find its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is the, the, the snake crusher, the head crusher. The one that was promised, we find fulfillment in him and him alone. And so... If he is the one who fulfills Psalm 8, he is the gateway, so to speak, in, in experiencing that rule and dominion. Well, you've got to understand that this invitation 
is given to all sinners who are in need of this hope, who are in need of the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. And you look to the Lord Jesus and you see he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the one that has made Psalm 8 possible again. This is God's grace. By the grace of God, this has been offered to those who don't deserve it. Do you realize that you fall in that camp? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we deserve, according to God's word, is death. That is what we deserve. So when you think about the grace of God, this unmerited favor, you look at verse 9 and realize Jesus left heaven and for a little while became lower than the angels. It was in his suffering and humiliation that he made a way for not only his exaltation and glory, but those who believe in him as well. If you are one with Christ, you are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that you read in Romans 8 that Pastor Andrew referred to last week, the great hope that is bound up in salvation in the Lord Jesus, it is yours because of what he has accomplished. And so you can read Psalm 8 as a psalm filled with great hope for those who find themselves saved by grace through faith in Christ. In other words, we don't at present see Psalm 8 fulfilled in ourselves just yet. But what we do see in Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews says, look to him. See him. Look to Jesus in whom your destiny is wrapped up. Fix your eyes upon him by faith, not on the pain and frustration and sickness and death of this age. They will not have the last word. There's, there's so much in our, our culture and society about investing in your future, which is good. If you're investing in the right thing, invest your hope in him the one who has accomplished and fulfilled all that we long for in Psalm 8. Keep your focus on him. This is where our hope must rest. If you are a believer this morning in this room, you need to hear this. You who do not neglect this great salvation, who continue to hold fast to your allegiance to Christ, there is a time coming when those who believe upon Christ shall enter into a glory surpassing that of the angels. You will reign with Christ and all things will one day be put in subjection to you. Now this is not to puff up our heads. The only way this is possible is because we're united with Christ and all things are put in subjection to him. And we get to ride on his coattails as his adopted children and experience what we were intended to be from the beginning, to rule and have dominion over all creation, not for our glory, but for God's glory. We are image bearers displaying his goodness to the ends of the earth. 
And so in Christ, we actually get to do what we were intended to do, what we were created to do. God will make the world to come even better than the first. It will not only be absent of sin, please hear this, sin will no longer be possible. That is the glory to come. If you find yourself, believer, brother, or sister, continuing to struggle to put sin to death, you read Psalm 51 over and over again and pray that God would create a new heart, a new spirit, a right spirit within you so that you would walk in a manner that pleases him, but you continue to struggle with the flesh. Please understand the great hope that is attached to Psalm 8 being fulfilled in Christ. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will no longer deal with sin. We will no no longer battle with the flesh. This is the great glory to come. We are now being sanctified and we will be sanctified. And we will experience life in the new heavens and the new earth without any tear, any heartache, and any sin. Death will be no more. I pray that Psalm 8 now is read entirely different from, for you. And when you look at Hebrews 2, you're seeing it through the lens of the one who has made Psalm 8 possible after such a horrible fall. It is glorious to look upon Christ and this great salvation and not only see the cleansing of sin, which, praise be to God, it is our only way to be communing with a holy God, but to see the comprehensive reality of this great salvation, that it is an already and not yet. And many times we lose sight of the not yet the glory of seeing Psalm 8 actually play out for real forever for those who are in Christ. By the work of the Spirit, I pray that this would encourage brothers and sisters because so often we are pulled down by the the sorrow and weight of this world because we, we, we simply lose sight, faith, to see what is ours in Christ Jesus. We're only seeing the physical and we allow it to just just overwhelm us. And, And we are called as Christians to renew our minds daily, to set our minds on things above. That's not just an exercise to, to make you feel better. It is the program in which we again and again fix our eyes upon the one who has made something that was not possible because of our sin possible by grace. And it should encourage us. We long for what is to come and it radically changes our present. We do not live as those who don't have Christ live. We don't mourn like the world mourns. We don't experience suffering and trials of various kinds like the world does. We can actually count it all joy, brothers and sisters, because we're we're living in a completely different paradigm. We don't do anything by ourselves. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We have been given the Holy Spirit who who indwells us. He, He dwells in us. Everything has changed for those in Christ. And so now and yet to come, 
things are, are so different. And so, brothers and sisters, at present, we do not yet see, but please pray to God that you would have eyes to see, the eyes of faith, what Christ has actually done for us. I want to close with a little portion by Richard Barcellus. We, when, sorry, when we know the end of the story, we may better know the beginning and everything in between. For example, at the end of the Bible, the entire new earth is sacred space. God dwells with his people in that place. In the beginning of the Bible, what we've looked at this morning, the sacred space was limited to the Garden of Eden. In the middle of the Bible, we see altars, tabernacles, Israel's temple, Christ himself, and then the church as a sacred space where God dwells with man in a special, unique way. All of these things point forward. They are symbolic of God's special dwelling among, excuse me, among men on the earth, but also many glimpses of the future. What was offered in the garden and spoiled by sin is brought to completion and perfection by our Lord Jesus Christ. What was experienced in the garden and then done away with because of sin, and then where we saw glimpses throughout redemptive history, we see fully what is to come. God's presence dwelling amongst us. As the water covers the sea, so the glory of God will cover to the ends of the earth. This is the great hope that Christ Jesus has made possible for sinners like you and me. Let us pray. Father, we have all sinned and we deserve death because of it. And what we have seen in this glorious passage is that by sending your son to die for sinners like us, you showed how important we are in your sight the crown jewel of creation. It is amazing as we look out and see all that your handiwork has made to know that you are mindful of us, that you, out of your great love for us, would send your son to die. Father, we praise you for redemption found in Christ. We thank you for the gospel. Oh God, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. Father, if we are found in Christ this morning, may we collectively joyfully say, Psalm 8 is our destiny. Because we are in Jesus and he is in us, one day all things will be put under our feet and we will rule and reign with him forever and ever. May that bring much encouragement to us. And Father, until then, we pray that you would sustain us, preserve us in faith. Do not let our doubts cripple our capacity to love you and to enjoy you and trust you. Help us this day 
to fix our eyes upon Jesus and behold him, the glory that will soon be ours in him, to the praise of Christ and Christ alone, we pray. Amen.